Welcome to The Power of a Graceful Leader with Alexis Thompson. Join us as we explore ways to access your deep inner wisdom, learn what it looks and feels like so that you can find your own path to integration, flow, and alignment, awakening the graceful leader within you. And now, here's your host, Alexis Thompson. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Power of a Graceful Leader podcast. We're excited to have you and uber excited to have teacher, coach, and friend, Karen Curry-Parker here. She's a best-selling author of multiple books, creator of the Human Design for Everyone training system, and the Quantum Alignment System. She's been speaking, coaching, training, and podcasting on these topics for almost 30 years, touching close to 100,000 lives around the world. Her core mission is to help people live the life they were designed to live by discovering who they are, what they are here to do, and how to activate their potential and authentic life path. With degrees in both nursing and journalism, Karen began to work as a midwife and also launched her own publishing company. Upon the birth of her own children, she focused on coaching and educating parents. She then studied advanced energy psychology techniques such as EFT and belief point energy repattering, as well as, of course, human design. She blended all of her training to create a new leading edge coaching program called the Quantum Alignment System. She's currently pursuing her PhD in integrative health and working on multiple new books. Karen's work has been featured on Fox News, Bloomberg, Business Week, CBS, ABC, and various radio shows and telesummits, and now my podcast. I'm very honored to have you here. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. So. <laughs> <laughs> that feels really good both ways. So that's, yeah, a, really good, that's yeah. a really good thing. So um, thank you for taking the time and um, thank you for all the amazing work that you do in the world. And when I read your bio, I've known you for a few years now, and I did not know you were a midwife or that you had a nursing degree. So I yes. was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Among <laughs> other things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's always set me up to have this weird, bi- you know, this like living in two worlds mindset. Cause you know, I have the writer, the the teacher, that element. And then there's always the the science and the healing arts and, you know, bridging those two has always been <laughs> an, adventure, an adventure. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I've had um, uh, Kay Taylor on and she's going to air before, before this one. And she's uh, MBA in finance and astrologist and intuitive psychic. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I think, I don't, I don't know why that is, but I think a lot of um, people that are doing the amazing work that you're doing are holding two worlds. Maybe that's part of the process for us is um, part of the healing process as well. I, I think I, can we go down this rabbit hole for a second? Cause I actually yeah, absolutely. Let's go. A lot. because yeah. I think that, you know, when we talk about business and entrepreneurship and getting your message out and getting your voice out and doing your work and honoring the call of your service and your soul, mm-hmm. you know, we are oftentimes sort of learning to do that in an old paradigm, which, and that old paradigm often tells us, oh, you have to find your niche, right? You have to find that little tiny narrow place where you belong and everything you make, you know, say makes sense. (laughs) And (laughs) I I think that right now we're in such a, such a huge cycle of shift and expansion that we're really standing on the edge, if not already one toe dipped into what I think is a a creative renaissance, a a creative Mm -hmm. revolution, if you will. And that creative revolution requires of many of us, especially, I mean, I think those of us who are really here at this time to be midwives, if you want to use that metaphor for a new world, we got to wear a lot of different hats in this journey. So it totally makes sense to me that 
we can be financial experts and astrologers or nurses and journalists or you know, accountants and cryptocurrency experts and people who are calling in, you know, sound frequencies to transform the karma of our relationship with money. You know, I, my, the people I work with, I have the privilege of working with as students, especially, you know, they are, they don't have one hat and they get very confused when they go and study. Well, here's how you build a practice. And they're told, well, you got to pick one thing. And they're like, how do you do that? (laughs) You know? (laughs) So, Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. And thank you for clarifying that. It's definitely been a journey for me where I haven't personally fit into um, any one particular space myself. And it's always been a dilemma because years ago it wasn't well received, whereas now it's actually an advantage or an edge Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we're living on. So awesome. So this podcast is really um, creating a bridge or holding some, what some people would think are opposing views, grace, right? We have a, we may have different complexes or understandings of that and leadership. Mm -hmm. And when I ventured out to write this book, it really was to bring a lot of the woo-woo stuff that you and I swim in love, right? Down to earth a little bit more and ground it in a practical way so that, that someone that's either entering in this or is up-leveling in any one location inside their leadership capacity and capabilities to be able to pull down some energy fields, grace in this case, to implement and integrate most importantly into how they want to lead themselves and and specifically others in this world. Mm -hmm. So when I was working with this book in order to do that, a lot of your work and many others that'll be featured on this podcast are kind of like the alchemy of all of you is inside this book. and, And part of my purpose on earth is to make it practical and actionable. Mm-hmm. Because that's just currently how we're wired and more doing than being, although that's the also evolving. Um, and so six tenets came through the work as I was writing the book. So we're going to explore those. But the first thing, and it's a big question, um, mm-hmm. is I'm wondering what role does grace um, play and how does it exist in your life? Okay, so I am, I am an expert on the Chinese I Ching. Awesome. So I live and breathe the, chi- the archetypes of the Chinese I Ching. I have the actual the hexagram for grace tattooed on my arm. <laughs> I love this. This is great. I'm learning um, all kinds of new things. Right. So, so, you know, to me, grace is an outcropping of faith. And you can't take leadership if you're not leading people towards something that's bigger than what you can accomplish by yourself. And that's not just by yourself, meaning, okay, we get a bunch of people and then we can do it. It's the by yourself without harnessing divine force, if you will, to create something, to build the scaffolding on an energetic and and an intention level of something that's greater than even you as a group of people unified around a common idea. Grace is the, the willingness to surrender to the not knowing, if you will, of what the next right step is going to be, but trusting that it's going to be revealed. And that if you let go and let that, that intention to serve as a group or as a leader, to be the beacon to quantum field, divine force, God source, whatever you want to call it. If that intention, you let that intention serve as a beacon, then it kind of acts as the tractor beam and then pulls in all the support, all the resources, all the answers, all the serendipity, synchronicity, magic, if you will, Mm -hmm. necessary for you to move forward towards the fulfillment of divine imperative or the goal. 
the goal. I like divine imperative. Mm-hmm. We should all put that in our, um, you know, when we think about corporate America, if we had divine imperative versus what's your goal, that would might right? change a lot. That would change a lot, at least the vibration of the conversation, right? Yeah, I like yeah. that. <laughs> I think I'm going to start using it. I'll let you know how it goes. Okay, so tenant one speaks about integrating mind, body, and soul. And that we've, most of us have heard that somewhere, um, at least on a, you know, a meme, if nothing else. And so what does, when someone says integrating mind, body, and soul, can you share with me what this means to you? Yeah, it's a song and, and, and the song goes, dooby, 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 do, right? <laughs> so, um, so, you know, to me, that is, you know, you said at the very beginning that maybe someday we'll just be like, you know, swimming out in the intention field and never have to do. But I think, you know, for now, at least we're still in the third dimension and it's a tangible reality that requires of us to move the mud. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and if we don't have a vetted, and I say vetted very specifically, a vetted relationship with divine imperative or source or God or whatever you want to call it, that bigger, that thing that's bigger than you individually that you are a part of, you know, if you don't have that consistent connection a pattern, a practice of some sort that allows you to vet inspiration, then you can't guide the doing part without it being frenetic or unsustainable, which is a huge piece uh. and, and, and cause, you know, massive chaos. So for you to be effective and for you to be sustainable, which I think, you know, the, this is the word I keep landing on personally and, and in everything that I teach right now, because we can't occupy the prayer field of sustainability and create sustainable sustainably on the planet right now, which is, I think, a big call for us if we ourselves are not being first sustainable, which, you know, at the root of being sustainable is being and, and having that capacity to be still, to sit, to, you know, you don't have to meditate for, you know, 20 minute cycles, morning and evening, but to at least take enough of a of a pause on a consistent basis on a daily basis to connect with who am i why am i here what's my greatest highest place of service and to drop into that first before you go do is to me that's really what that mind body spirit integration piece is it's it's making sure that the doing is aligned with the the spirit and getting the the monkey mind out of the way by cultivating a consistent practice of hearing better yeah, no, I love that. One of the um, things here at Ubuntu that there's a brook that runs along the property all year long, which is mm. a thing in the winter, right? It, <laughs> sometimes they don't run, but it does. And I find my most beingness is when I sit by that brook and just listen to the babbling or the rushing, depending on the time of year. And it takes me both in and out of my body, which I find to be an interesting con- mm-hmm, experience mm-hmm. at the same time, so much that we've called it being Brooke. Like if you just want to go be, get up out of your desk, because there's lots of us working here to went to and head down to the brook and sit and just be with the water. Because when you're with water, water doesn't know anything else. It's just being. Right. And right. It, and it really attunes very quickly for me in that way. So um, there's lots of great tips for that. Yoga was one that we would think of, right. To get our mind and our body kind of aligned and together. Um, and there's a lot of really other great practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you have a particular practice for this for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I will say I am on my, how old am I? I'm on my 36th year of transcendental meditation. So I do, I do have a, you know, yep. 40 minute a day meditation practice. 
Um, but that's not for everyone. And so I'm always a little bit hesitant to say, yeah, just do that because mm-hmm. it is a commitment. It is a practice. It is. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, as complex as sitting and having a mantra and repeating it. It can be right. just, as you said, just go for a walk, go down to the yeah. brook or, you know, I walk my dogs. That's oftentimes that's my spiritual practice. They teach me just about everything about how to really be in the world. <laughs> so. that's, very true. that's very true. Whenever you want to know about presence, take a dog for the walk. Right. Sure. They do it on their own timing for sure. Okay, great. Thank you. So tenant number two is um, talks about the evolution or evolving. And this is specifically the alignment between soul and self. So we're talking about essence and ego. Let's just use those two words because that's what the world uses a lot. So in that alignment, are you personally clear, which I think, you know, we've read in your bio, but let's go through this. Are you clear about your purpose this time around the sun? Yeah. And I'll say, yeah, I mean, I, I was, this is a topic that always makes me cry because I, I do think that sometimes people really wrestle with this topic and, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's, there's, there's grace in the wrestling. There's something yes. about the process of wrestling with it that makes it that much more meaningful. Mm-hmm. I am one of those very weird people who have known since I was four years old, because I, I had an imaginary friend when I was four, um, still have him um, <laughs> named Thomas. And we would ride in the back of my mom's car. She would be smoking. The windows would be up. <laughs> no seatbelts. No seatbelts. But, you know, my imaginary friend in the back seat with me. And he, he would always tell me, your job is to go forth and teach only love in the world. And so it's taken on a lot of different forms. But I've always been really clear about that piece. And that's, that's a huge, I feel really blessed and really grateful to not have had the same struggles that I watch my clients have. Mm-hmm. And also, as I said, again, knowing that there's no, there's nothing wrong or right or more wrong, less wrong or more right about struggling versus knowing sometimes the struggle itself is the teacher. So, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, many times, at least I think I'm a example of the need to suffer into grace. <laughs> you know, I have, it's been, you know, I would say the first half of my life is really bumpy and, um, by many standards and certainly my own internal, it was a lot of failure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so on the other half of my life, um, I think some people, if you didn't get it when you were four with Thomas in the backseat of your mom's car, um, another way that I've experienced myself and clients coming to it is through the suffering and Mm -hmm. then refining the suffering and then teaching or being the other side of that. So other people can see the possibility. Yeah. So that's, I love that there's, and, and just inside of that, there's a bazillion other ways as well. Those are just exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. Um, So the fourth tenant here is transparency. And this is probably the one I spend the most time with my clients on when they're when they're up leveling their leadership and how they got right here, usually senior director to VP. And when they're ready to go into the next level, this transparency one is kind of the Achilles heel. It's like, how do I be appropriately and transparent? What is appropriately transparent? Everyone's talking about vulnerability. Why would I do that? You know, all of those things. So um, when did you first become aware of some of the roles that you were playing in your life in relationship to transparency? Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, there are things I have still not told my kids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, it's, I, I, that's been a long and delicate dance. You know, I feel like 
it's always been important to me as a role model leader to really talk about the challenges that I've had. I mean, I certainly could say, okay, at four, I knew what I was here to do, but that doesn't mean like I clicked my heels together three times and poof, it happened. You know, (laughs) I've, uh, you know, struggled through being a full-time single parent, raising four teenagers by myself, being responsible for fully feeding them, running my business. You know, there were years, there's still, I mean, there's always times when you don't get it right and you screw up and, um, and, and there is great merit in, I think, especially in the personal growth and development field of really saying, look, you know, this whole, you know, if I can do it, you can do it thing is crap. It, it's, it, that worked for me. I love that. I'm yep. different than you. And, and I just want to add, and I don't mean this to be anti-masculine in any st- stretch of the way, but, you know, we're looking at an industry that's 80% of the leaders in the industry are men and 80% of the people buying in the industry are women. And, you know, when, when, uh, forgive me here, but at least at a certain point in my life, when a man told us, stood up and said, well, we homeschool our children. And I'm like, you don't homeschool your children. Your wife does. (laughs) And I am homeschooling my children by myself. So we have a different, you know, perspective. I, I think that it's really an interesting conversation and one that I'm still learning about, especially this year in particular, really exploring the conversation around DEI work in, in my community, because there's the behind the scenes and exploring, you know, my white shame, if you will, mm-hmm. around these kinds of conversations. Like, am I not getting it right now? I'm feeling badly if I'm not. And do I have these conversations? And how do we have these conversations? It's supercharged mm-hmm. and our business doesn't really have anything to do with DEI to a certain degree. And yet we have to bring it in because we're not having these conversations. It's messy. And I can, with the greatest of intent, open my mouth. And 50% of the time, I'm going to say the wrong thing without realizing it because of my own conditioning. And so it's definitely been a huge lesson in transparency. Um, and I, I would say, I don't know what the right answer is. I'll tell you the only thing that I can, I can conclude about transparency is try it. <laughs> And I have definitely learned because, because it makes, it makes it okay for everybody else to be wrestling. And I think that that has to happen because if we keep buying into this mythology of there's a formula for perfection and you just follow this formula and poof, you're going to get it right. And if you're not getting it right, it's because you didn't do it right. We have to really work through all the layers of that. And transparency, I think is key to helping us get out of that conditioning but I also think it's important to speak from the scar and not the wound. And that's, that's I think, really essential when it comes to transparency, because you also, in your business, especially as a leader, you can't work through the, blood, the bleeding wound with your clients or with your team or with, you know, th- those things have to be held behind closed doors until you can speak to the experience and, and the healed place and not try to work it out too, too much out loud while you're still bleeding. I think it, that never works well. That, that's probably the one thing I've learned. <laughs> so I really love that distinction. So when you, when you say that either from personal experience or client experience, if I'm bleeding right around a wound and let's say I'm aware enough to know that I am, what do I, where do I go as a leader? The, as we rise, the, the oxygen is less and the safe places be, feel, feel less, even if they aren't. Um, so what would you recommend for a leader to do in the healing of the wound to get to the scar? Any tips? 
I, well, I, I would say I, I'm not, I can't give you a referral for a good therapist, but I right. would say, um, I think one of the places where leaders sometimes fall down mm-hmm. and it, it is the lack of willingness because you're leading to go get help because you think you should know better or, you know, you think, oh, well, I'm the leader. And that, that help is, is also, I would even gently even say, also making sure you're checking in to be sure you're coachable on top of that. I, I, I've worked with a lot of leaders. I mean, I've kind of, I kind of almost, I'm very careful about vetting this now at the beginning of it, that at a certain tier of leadership, because you have accomplished so much, you're confident and that's great, but there's also still that little fear of, well, now I can't have any chinks in my armor because I may, I followed the formula and I'm at this place now. Yeah. And that, that shuts down not only the potential for growth, but also the potential for learning. So, uh, you know, stay humble and stay, yeah. stay willing to learn, I think is it. And, and go get the help that you, you need. There's no shame in getting help, even if you're at the top. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and oftentimes I think, because I'm working in that demographic every day that once someone's willing to just let down enough and surrender into the need for help and then the ask for help, they realize the power behind the ask and the surrender, but you, Mm -hmm. and the front side, there's the illusion that it's the weakness on the the experiential side, you actually feel the power. So moving through the unknown is really, or being willing to take that risk is key. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, number five, the 10 number five is connecting self and universe, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in the world that I would say you're a leader in, in the spiritual space and um, quantum physics and all those things, right? There's a word that we hear a lot for the layman's around collective. And mm-hmm. I get a lot of questions around what does that even mean? So from the place of where you, when you use the human collective or this collective, can you give us a little background about what that is? Uh, okay. So I'm going to couch this totally in my new understanding lately. The, okay. This, I love this question because I literally this weekend was journaling about this. So here's my new understanding. I'm trying okay. this out. I may totally blow this. So I've been thinking a lot about witchcraft and I've been thinking a lot about witchcraft because to me, the, the archetype of the witch is such an interesting embodiment of feminine power, right? And in witchcraft, you have the three phases of femininity, right? You've got the maiden, the mother, and the crone. Mm-hmm. Here's how I would interpret collective. The maiden is sort of like the mutant, right? The, the maiden brings in new ideas, new energies. There's sort of a youthful zest. There's a little bit of naivete because there's a whole lot of path that hasn't been walked yet. And, and even though it hasn't been tested or proven, which is true of mutation in its inception, it's new and it's, it's, it has the potential to spark transformation and change over time, right? Mm-hmm. The mother is, is sort of very tribal, if I can use that word. So the mother is very much focused on, you know, is my child got enough food? Is there education? Are we safe? Do we have a home? Do we have a community? So the energy of, of motherhood is sort of this tribal quality and the crone becomes collective. And, and I'm, I'm sharing this with you based on my own experience. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of run. It's not necessarily super funny, but I, I did an interview recently with Frank Schaefer, who has been writing about being a grandparent. And I have two young grandsons. They are two and uh, seven, six months, six months. 
And so, you know, I keep, I have this memory of nursing my own children and I I nursed for a lot of years and just writing about how, when you hold a baby in your hand and your your arms and you're nursing them, it's like, you're connected to this sort of infinity. Right. And, and you would sort of, you would die for these babies. Right. When you hold your grandbaby, it's like, you are connected to the entire cosmos, you know, beyond anything that you've ever been, were aware of when you held your children. And it's like, you would die for your children, but you'd kill for your grandchildren. Now, you wouldn't, I don't know if I would, literally, I'm not trying to make a violent metaphor around that, but there's a, there's a different quality of energy. And now it's like, when I'm with my grandsons, not only am I thinking, holy moly, I better up my fitness game because I can't, <laughs> can't keep up with these kids. But I'm also thinking, you know, these guys are going to be here way after I'm gone. And so now my thinking is like, I'm not just going to be creating a world for my children. I have to lay the groundwork for creating a world for my grandchildren and their children. You know, I hope I live long enough to watch my grandchildren become parents. I mean, that to me would be the coolest thing ever. And then I think, well, how much more is this model going to explode beyond that? So the, the crone, the grandmother, the crone is sort of the collective mindset of really looking at how do we structure not just our communities, but the entire planet in such a way that it becomes sustainable and loving and the, you know, in every nook and cranny of this world, we are fulfilling the full potential of the human story. We're living in peace. We're living abundantly. We're living sustainably. We're caring with compassion. We're creating systems, if you will, that deliver services and safety and and sustenance in a you know, in an enduring way. And how do we structure that? So that to me is collective. It's yeah. grandmother energy. I so. love it. <laughs> I love it. And while I'm not, you know, a grandmother only to some dogs at this point, I understand the energy just from life cycle of, of aging. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels almost with that analogy um, that I'm just lifting my head up to the stars for the first time and understanding the interconnectedness to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. That's great. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. I'm glad you took the time to journal. Okay. So the next one is near and dear to my heart. As you know, I do a lot of work in the gratitude space. Mm-hmm. So can you share with me, do you have a gratitude specific practice or how does gratitude interface in your life? I have your journal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I have a, I have a daily gratitude practice that is very much what I've learned from your, your work and, you know, really practice staying in gratitude because I, I truly believe that gratitude is the platform for innovation that if we can't innovate, if we're not grateful, we, because we can't respond to what's working if we're not grateful because we don't see it. So how are we going to innovate correctly? If we don't know what's working and we're not looking at it and being grateful for it, we can't expand upon it. Wow. That, that one hit home. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone um, talk about it in relationship to innovation. When you say it, I get it, but I've never mm-hmm. heard the words around it. So I love that because you can't innovate from scarcity right? and, and anything outside of gratitude typically is that that's really cool. Okay. Co-creating and innovative, which is the perfect segue into the next tenant. <laughs> okay. And this is, goes back to your DEI. Um, what role does diversity play in your, in your life personally? How messy do we want to get with this? This is a big, messy topic. <laughs> it, is a, it is a big, messy topic. So pick whatever tentacle you'd like to slide down and let's go there. You know, I, I think that I'll, I'll play in the space that we're in, that we're in right now with my business. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. because I teach a system that's astrologically based. When I look at a chart, you know, I can't tell race or gender from the chart. And, and for many years, I have been like, well, this system is totally by nature inclusive because there's no race or gender in it. And yet, every time I open my mouth, the reality of it is the language that I use is going to be conditioned by my own, mm. well, by my own conditioning. And so, I might think, oh, hey, it's just astrology. But what I have learned over the years is the entrance point into what I teach has a lot of gates. Not using human design as a as a as a right. pun here. It has a lot of gates and a lot of doorways. And the way that the material is presented isn't necessarily inclusive just because different people come through gates in different ways. Mm-hmm. And really learning how to be open to that, really practicing not being triggered by that. Oh yeah. Um that's another piece. Um mm-hmm. and and I'll say I bring a really I, I have also been bringing and wrestling and grappling with a different element of my own background. You know, I am a first generation American. My, my mother literally came over on a boat as, as a Holocaust survivor. And, you know, I, I live in a very Jewish community. I, I live in a community where three weeks, four weeks ago, our synagogue was shut down because there was a significant threat that, that they, somebody was planning to come and shoot shoot up, shoot our congregation during high, ho- high holiday services. And so part of me is like, I'm not white. And, 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 and yet I am white by definition in terms of how I'm perceived and engaged in the world. Yep. So I have had to really look at, well, how do I have this conversation and not be reactionary around my whiteness and mm-hmm. my not whiteness or am I white? Am I, you know, it's like, it's a very complicated conversation. And and I would say the only thing that I can say is I have, I have worked very hard to set strong guidelines about how we behave in my community. I will say that, as I said, I can guarantee you probably 50% of the time when I open my mouth, I'm getting it wrong, so to speak. Yeah. Because I think it's a conversation that is so new that we don't know yet how to have these conversations well, but we better be having the conversations whether they're uncomfortable or not. Mm-hmm. I will say that. I've hired two different DEI consultants to come in to the business to the that we paid really big bucks for, I will say. And the idea of having a DEI person come in was great. Both of the people who I hired were actually really bad at coaching. And, and it actually ended up causing more problems rather than helping. Mm-hmm. So that's left me sort of sitting with a little bit of PTSD around do I make the investment again, or do I just keep doing the metrics around the numbers, which our numbers are getting better. For sure, our numbers are getting better. They're not where I want them to be. I would like our numbers to reflect the population, you know, uh, the diversity in our population, but they're not there yet. And um, I'm personally sitting in a space where as a leader, I literally don't know what the next right step is. That's actually something I'm really in prayer about right now, because it's important to me to do this well, and I don't know if we know yet exactly how to do that. Yeah, I think, um, and to your point, we're going to have to, well, I don't want to say it's so commanding as that, but oftentimes to get to whatever we think right is or most appropriate, let's say, 
it takes a lot of inappropriateness along the way, which is what you're experiencing, right? On something that's new and in the forefront. Mm-hmm. And, and probably, I mean, I have biracial children mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I, I'm a white, I am white. My generations ago, people came over uh, growing up in one of the whitest states in the nation in Vermont. And I left to go to Texas for 25 years to raise my kids with the purpose of, I needed them, I needed them to understand that the mm-hmm. world didn't look like this because they didn't look like this. And I didn't know how to parent inside the other culture. And I was single parenting at the time as well. Mm-hmm. So it really took a tribe <laughs> literally to help raise my children so that they understood other parts of who they are and are becoming. So I, I can appreciate that. And I want to thank you. Actually, I just want to take a minute and express some gratitude that as a leader, in your own business and in your own work in the world, you care enough to take the pause and be in the fear and then take the next move. It's, it's a, it's a big one for us all. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So let's jump down to compassionately power in all things. This is, this is always a fun one to talk about because people are like, how can you be compassionate and powerful? And I'm like, Oh, okay, well let's, let's dive in there. Right. Um, (laughs) So what does the idea of compassionately powerful bring up for you? To me, it it always comes back to uh, actually a Jewish word. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Jewish word is anava, which is humility. Ah. And and humility in in Judaism is is taught very, very, in a very unique way because we, we define arrogance into as, as sort of the same, you know, obviously the opposite side of, of the coin of humility, but they're really uh-huh. distinctly different. And arrogance is, of course, swagger and overcompensating for, you know, ego and that whole thing that we think of traditionally as arrogance. But arrogance is also the failure to take your right place in the world. Uh-huh. And, and you know, really recognizing that each and every one of us is born into a right place, that it is I believe our job, if you will, our obligation, which is a word that mis- I think gets misused a lot, but I like it a lot. Um, you know, we have an obligation to explore how do we take our right place and fill no more than, but also no less than our right space in the world. Mm-hmm. And when we heal, if you will, the karma of our own self-worth, then we can stand in a perspective that allows us to not only see and value our unique and vital and irreplaceable role in the cosmic plan. But then we start to understand from that place, oh, everybody else has a place too, because otherwise, you know, we're just a bunch of threads and we're not a tapestry. And we are a tapestry. We are an amazing tapestry of beingness on this planet. And every one of us has a vital thread in that tapestry. And when you really get that, it it activates an enormous amount of power. I think that activates the real essence of the will, if you will, that is really the seat of will power, because now you become empowered in, in creating from a place of integrity. And I, I really mean more structural integrity than anything, but also, you know, from a place where you claim and defend your own honor, but also the honor of others. And when you understand that there's karma behind the journey of untangling your self-worth, and that karma is oftentimes rooted in ancestral lineage, epigenetics, who knows what else, right? Mm -hmm. Then it allows you to, with great power, stand in front of someone. And first of all, and and I think this is the first part of the power piece, because 
we tend to think of power as being, you know, usurping, seizing, taking, but yes. really it is a state of being. Mm-hmm. When you stand in that place where you're fully occupying your right space in your right place, you occupy an energy field that is phenomenally powerful. We all know it. We're, we're compelled to follow people who stand in that space. Yes. You know? And when, when you stand in that space, first of all, you're creating an energy field that gives people permission to do the same thing only in their own space. Mm-hmm. It also allows you to hold a space of compassion because you know you can see the value that, of everyone. You sort of fall in love with everybody's potential when you start. Yes. Talking, right? <laughs> and you also can hear the old buy-ins to the lies that say it's not okay for them to be who they are and how they are. And even though you're not necessarily going to be the one that coaches them or heals them, you can still hold space for that potential and hold the energy field, if you will, or the prayer field for them to walk into that potential and to, you know, to send them love while they walk that journey. Yeah. And also be compassionate enough to set good boundaries to say, "Mm -mm." if you want to behave like you still believe in the lie, you can't come in. You have to deal with the lie and then you can come in. Yeah, that that has been one of the biggest lessons that nature and this place where I am now has been teaching me. And it has been a ferocious learning. <laughs> <It is. laughs> I have been hard. rich by this <laughs> many times. Um, yeah. So I'm pretty, I'm I'm pretty um resilient now to both identify and to speak into that boundary most of the time with love and compassion. Sometimes I miss the mark. So yeah, that's great. Thank you. So when to wrap up this last tenant here, there's the concept of duality that compassion and power bring up and you threaded them pretty well together. Um, are you pretty comfortable with the shades of gray or do you prefer a more black and white um, way of sorting out the world? <laughs> of course I prefer the, the <laughs> black and white. Wouldn't that make everything so much easier? <laughs> It just is or it isn't, right? <laughs> but yeah. no, um, you know, there's so much in there's so many interesting things in the gray, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, I think it's probably why King Solomon is probably one of my favorite heroes in, in a way that the the ability to say, okay, here's the appearance of the problem. It looks like this, it's either this or that. Mm-hmm. And to be able to come in and go, yeah, but what about this over here? I think the real creativity lives in the gray. Certainly the compassion lives in the gray. Yes. And um, I, I don't know. I think it's too, I think, well, I mean, there's so much there to unpack with that one. We're, <laughs> moving, we're moving out of binary thinking. Yeah. Binary thinking is an artifact of materialism. It's old. It's an old way of thinking this or that rich or poor have, have not male and female even, right? It's yeah. it's such a limiting way of perceiving the world. And maybe we let go of the whole black or white metaphor and start looking at metaphors that are spectrums. You know, Ooh. where on the spectrum does this lie? Is it more pointed towards activating a quality of well-being and expansion? Or is it more pointing towards, you know, limitation and and suffering and stop judging either one of the ends of the spectrum, because as you have already pointed out, sometimes there's tremendous blessings and gifts and things we learn from the gray and the suffering mm-hmm. to point us better towards the well-being. But, but if we could all let go of the, this or that thinking, yeah, <laughs> we would be, we'd be so much better off. It would be yeah. much more interesting. I think. 
Yeah. And I think um, one of the, one of the things that helped me do that or helped continues to help me, I do it less and less, but it's to just, when I find myself doing that and sorting my world as any kind of this, that um, thinking, I just drop into curiosity and I start asking myself, Oh, that's interesting. Why did you choose that? And is there mm-hmm. another choice? Um, and then that, that reduces judgment immediately. And it's a much more playful, creative space, as you've mentioned. So yeah, totally. Great. Okay. These three questions are all about you. You ready? Okay. Okay. <laughs> like they haven't been already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I suppose the tenants are for all of us, right? So in your work, where do you see grace intersect most prominently? Oh, like every time I open my mouth, um, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that probably, honestly, the biggest embodiment of grace right now and where we play with grace in, at the highest level is on my team. I, I have been really incredibly blessed by a team of people who really get the idea of building a scaffolding of potential as part of a daily practice and um, we have we you know we have meetings on a on a daily basis where we are envisioning and building prayer fields and holding scaffolding and seeing you know potentials and expanding upon them with great consciousness even if we don't know what the next right step is mm-hmm. and and really exploring how do we follow through with the flow of the fulfillment of whatever that is by divine imperative so um, to me that's probably the the best place where we do it and I think because we are because my team does take such a leadership role in the company, they are the the front line of where all of our clients and students meet because they're embodying that. I think it creates a, a wave of possibility for our clients and our students to also step into that same potential. Yeah. Having uh, the, just the thought of all the students and teachers and your staff stepping into that grace field it's like a beacon of light for every other soul on this planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So in your inner scape, do you experience any body connections with grace? Telltale signs that you're in grace from a human body 3d experience. Um, that's a, that's a good one. It's probably, I I am a hundred percent certain there's a lot of learning there because definitely my head can be very disconnected from my body. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I, I would certainly say that for me, if I get stiff and, and, and cranky and literally, you know, my, my hamstrings are tight and my back is tight, mm-hmm. I know I'm not in grace and flow um, right. because I'm probably sitting too hard and thinking too long. Mm-hmm. So, that, yeah. That's it's really pretty clear. Yeah, <laughs> so. that is pretty clear. Actually, it's really interesting that you mentioned the hamstrings because I have that same thing. And even though I have this nice fancy desk to help me with the ergonomics, I sit too much. And mm-hmm. that's the moment that I get up and walk out to being Brooke. Yeah. It's in that moment that I'm like, oh, I am not in flow. This is way too hard. And I'm out of here to that, to yeah. nature. So thanks for that connection. I hadn't connected hamstrings to it. So, so. <laughs> okay. So I want to say congratulations to you as, a, as an author, who's kind of finding her own way through that maze of publishing and everything you have um, started a new adventure um, called Grace Point Publishing. I'd love for you to talk as much as you would like about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not really a new adventure in uh-huh. a way. It, it's okay. an old new adventure. Okay. Um, you know, as as you read in my bio, I've I've owned a publishing company or some kind of a publishing company since I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I will have to say, uh, 
you you have to be really mindful of giving me this long space for this. No, I, have a, I have a whole, you know, I, I joke. We I have a whole like manifesto on creativity that I read every day. <laughs> and part of part of this manifesto is that, you know, as I said, we're on the cusp of a creative revolution. Things are shifting and changing. And to a certain degree, we're outpacing the speed at which information can be disseminated, even though we live in the information age. And, and I really think actually that maybe we're not in the information age anymore. I think we might be really in the inspiration age and that for us to make the transitions that we need to make and shift our thinking in the way that we need to make to best catch up with, I think the evolution of the planet, you know, we need, we need to be inspired. We need to, I think first and foremost, remember how to dream and how to tap into inspiration as the creative spark that makes things happen, that, that innovates what we're experiencing on the planet. We are having to, as systems fall apart, and I think they're going to continue to fall apart over the next few years, we're having to jump and run and reconfigure our, our ideas about community, about food, about education, about healthcare. We're, we're rethinking everything. And while I am a big loud mouth with a lot of, you know, with voice. I'm, I really only take up a tiny fraction of the airspace, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I learned a long time ago as a leader in my business that I couldn't heal everybody on the planet. And the only way that I could amplify the healing work that I do was to teach other people to do what I do, because then I could create an army of conscious entrepreneurs and healers who could go out and do this work. And hopefully at some point teach other people and other people and other people like the old hair color commercial or the, you know, <laughs> and so on and so on. Right. Yeah. It really, I got really clear a couple of years ago that I needed to sort of enact that same model for thought leaders and for cultural creatives and for teachers. And that what that really meant for me is that I had to go back to with my business partner, Michelle Vandepass. We had to go, who also has had publishing companies since she was 20. We had to go back to actually opening up a publishing company and helping people amplify their voices, helping leaders and teachers and thought leaders and creatives amplify their voices. Because if we don't hear the, the, the song of the leading edge of evolution, if we're not hearing it in many different ways, from many different places, in many different platforms, if we're not integrating it. In through you know through all the noise and the overwhelm that we're experiencing it, we might not have the next vital piece of information we need to build a new, better world. So we created Grace Point Publishing. Um, I, I can read the mission statement, but you know we are you know our mission is to amplify voices, and as part of that mission, we have created multiple imprints that are specifically geared towards different kinds of voices, including marginalized voices. We have an LGBT. TQ press. Did I get that right? We have, we have, um, we have an Afri- uh, an African-American women's press. We have, uh, we are consciously and, and deliberately looking for marginalized, marginalized voices, particularly in the realm of publishing, because if I started telling you about the dark side of traditional publishing mm-hmm. and the so many gatekeepers that there are in the publishing industry, I mean, one of the things that we've done in the last year is we've become one of the very few women-owned publishing companies that have reached a top tier of distributorship by virtue of just how many books we've sold. Um, and and the, the vetting and the 
hoops we had to jump through to get to that level. And really realizing as we were going through all these hoops, like this is really stacked against us. I mean, for, you know, fortunately we made it, but it made us even more doubly committed to making sure that we bring people through this process so that we eliminate this extremely exclusionary, exclusionary industry that controls the flow of information on the planet. So uh, there's <laughs> right now we have a very interesting challenge in front of us as a publishing company. And that challenge is that, first of all, people don't read. <laughs> that's, that's a big problem when you're a publisher. Um, the rates of reading have decreased astronomically. Secondly, right now, this year, it's 2021 in the fall, we have supply chain issues. So uh, if you're not printing through Amazon, that means your book is getting printed in China. And there's just, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And I promise you half of the library of the next year is sitting on boats in the Pacific right now. So we're not getting books off the boats. Mm -hmm. We have a paper shortage. And so that what that also means is that we as a company are having to really pivot and explore from a very different lens. Okay, if our role, if our mission, if our divine imperative is to amplify voices, how are we going to do that? So we have really quickly shifted in the last couple of months to also adding a digital and audio production company to the publishing company so that we're able to, even if somebody doesn't have, if their book's in a boat, <laughs> they still could do podcasts or audiobooks or ebooks or we're actually looking at even taking some of our fiction books and turning them into theatrical productions and doing like subscription service, sort of old timey radio oh, show. Uh, yeah. So we're, we're really exploring again, how do we continue to be a megaphone of consciousness on the planet? How do we, you know, really work to amplify the voices of the world so that first of all, you know, people who are the leaders, teachers, thought, thought leaders, they have a platform and secondly, so we also structure it so that it's equitable and fair for them so that they get to profit and benefit from the work they've contributed so that they can stay sustainable and keep being beacons to the world. So, Wow. There's more, but I'll, I'll stop there. No, I want, as an author, I want to thank you for that. And um, I've thought many times as I've been working on the outline for my next book that I'll be pitching it over and seeing if it's adventurous to you guys. That sounds amazing. We'd be honored. Yeah, me too. It'd be fantastic. I want to thank you for the grace you are in the world and for the fierceness and the warrior that's within you also in this world. And um, it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to see those things sitting on the same table, interacting and understanding that there's all sides and all ways to get there. And yours is a pretty effective one. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you're you. welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to The Power of a Graceful Leader. Please join your host, Alexis Thompson, for another enlightening edition of the program soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.